Welcome to People, Places, and How We Use Spaces, where we chat with amazing, successful people whose stories inspire us. As a bonus, all of our guests have something to teach us about commercial real estate based on their own experiences. I am your host, Lisa Christensen. My companies help business owners, developers, and investors buy, sell, and lease space. On today's episode of People and Places and How We Use Spaces, I am joined by my guest, Howard Pastor. Howard is a well-respected commercial real estate owner, developer, and investor in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. He is the owner of Pastor Properties, a third-generational family-owned business that has been involved in developing and managing neighborhood commercial real estate properties for over 70 years. Under Howard's leadership, he has taken big strides to continue to grow and expand, venturing into other property types like multifamily with the intent on bringing assets that build community in neighborhoods. Before we get started, I just want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I would really appreciate it if you follow, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now I'd like to give a really warm welcome to Howard Pastor. Howard, welcome. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. My uh, first podcast, I just want to throw that out there. All right. Well, I'm confident that you are going to nail it. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yeah. So, Howard, you are part of a three-generational dynasty in the Twin Cities, I would say. Pastor Properties, started by your grandfather? Started by my grandfather. I don't know that I would say dynasty, but, you know, <laughs> certainly a third generation family business. And my grandfather, Herman, who I'm named after, started the business with his, I think with a couple of relatives. I'm trying to recall if it was his brother-in-law or cousins or cousins of brother-in-law, but my grandfather was first generation immigrant, kind of came came here after World War One, uh, and he had a big personality, salesman, and the, the history is that prior to the commercial real estate business, we were in the coin machine kind of manufacturer distribution business, so... So like uh, in, vending? In vending machines, right? So in, okay. in plain terms, okay. they basically had relationships with... Bally's Corporation, the, the gaming corporation who had slot machines and pinball machines, and with Wurlitzer, the jukebox. Cool. Folks. So we were the we were a distributor for Bally's and Wurlitzer and some other groups. And we owned roots kind of throughout Minnesota and I think the Dakotas. And we would the company, which was Mayflower Distribution at the time, it was my great uncle Sam Turan and my and, and then later on my grandfather Herman and they basically went and sold these these various machines to bars and restaurants kind of throughout the throughout the Minnesota and the Dakotas and I think later Iowa and then they think that they ended up creating a finance company where they financed it but they were peddlers right they were that's they perfect were, uh, that's awesome I yeah. love that story and then they kind of said, "Oh well." Well, gosh. so this is what happened. I think. I think my 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 great uncle ended up 
moving to Miami after World War II. He opened an office down there. And then my grandfather, you know, I don't know, lost patience or something like that, sold the business. And they went into real estate development and they were developing single family homes for the GIs that were coming back from World War II. So they started off kind of in Highland Park, you know, kind of some of those smaller, you know, single starter story homes. Starter, starter homes. Um, wow. They were doing that. And then eventually it kind of grew into developing grocery anchor shopping centers because they had a relationship with the Applebaum's family who oh. had a grocery store chain called Applebaum's, those that are familiar with that. Yep. And the real estate kind of shopping center development business kind of started, I'd say, in the, I think in the late 40s. Wow. Something like that, 48-ish. I mean, were they, you know, I, I picture kind of the, you know, when I got into the business, Pastor Properties had all these grocery anchored centers. I mean, there were several of them, right? They had to be the big, shiny new things on the block and kind of, I mean, compared well, I to what so, else was there I, I when, think, they were, I mean, when they were we, opened. We, do, so, so, the, so I want to say one of the first shopping centers in the Twin Cities, first grocery anchored shopping centers in the Twin Cities was Lexington Plaza and Lexington and Larpenter, which... Technically, was Roseville, but right on the border of St. Paul and Roseville. And at the time, it ended up growing into like three city blocks. There was three different grocers in there. Wow, three so different grocers in the same center. Yeah, so this is before they had exclusive, apparently. <laughs> Harken back to those days, right? That would be, uh, That'd be a little great. easier. But so that was one of the, that was one of the first ones and then shortly after Sibley Plaza which on West 7th and Davern in St. Paul and I think that my grandfather bought that partially under construction from a guy named Walter Stepnitz at least as far as the history goes maybe someone out there is listening and they can you know verify ha- help verify <laughs> but I haven't been able to find anyone alive that can kind of verify <laughs> some of these details that have been part of the fable over the years but I think back in the day, yeah, right, that was a very new thing, right? And the, with the suburban kind of expansion of all these metro areas. And ironically, so my grandfather was kind of doing that in St. Paul on the Minneapolis side. A guy named Adolph Fine was doing the same thing in St. Louis Park. He's the guy that developed Texatonka. Okay. We recently purchased Texatonka and did a redevelopment there. And I've gotten to know Adolph's granddaughter, I love who we that. bought the property from. And it was a very like similar kind of story. So, I love that kind of ironic and somewhat circular how life works. That's amazing. And so, but you, your dad then. So my of- dad and his brothers kind of went into the business. My grandfather passed away. I want to say in 1960, and my dad and his uncle were all they were still kind of in college. So different. Different time. I don't think there was a lot of great planning. And so they kind of had to bootstrap and figure out how to wow. not go bankrupt and, you know, kind of work with stave off the lenders and and the government and, you know, all the tax planning. But they figured it out. And ultimately, my dad ended up working with his older brother in the business for a number of years. They ended up kind of parting ways. And my dad kind of, I would say, continued to grow the business, certainly not as aggressively as my grandfather did. I think those 
events likely colored his tolerance for risk. It um, kind of goes every other generation. Yeah, I guess, right? Uh-huh. You know, That's interesting. We, we joke that, you know, it's like, or I used to joke, I don't know that I thought it was a joke at the time, but, you know, the third generation, right, comes in and has all these great ideas of how to ratchet up the risk and, you know, put the pedal to the metal and the second generation is like, no, slow down, hold on, you know. Not gonna. <laughs> I think that's true, and you've done such a good job of that. Before I we get to all of that, I, you didn't go right into the business out of college. You went to Madison, right? I went to I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Okay. Uh, I graduated, and then I moved to Chicago, and I worked for Mid America Real Estate down there doing property management, and then I moved into product leasing, and I was there for eight years from ninety two to two thousand, and. I would say that there was maybe somewhat of a plan where there was a thought that or a conversation maybe informally between my dad and I that it would be better to kind of go elsewhere and be able to bring some knowledge and some tools kind of back to the table. I think probably in combination with the fact that my dad had a huge personality, kind of larger than life, and I knew that I would probably get squashed if I just went to go and work for the family business after um, after college. Yeah, kind of so, better to figure uh, out who you are out, out from underneath that. Yeah, and so you know, I went to a different market where people didn't know me, and I could kind of spread my wings and learn, and not always be known as you know Eddie's son. Yeah. So, and the reality of it is, I think when I was, I graduated in December of 91. So it was not a great time in the commercial real estate market. And I was out kind of interviewing with all these, you know, companies, all of, you know, all these other real estate developers who knew my dad. And, you know, I think the common refrain was, well, it's okay. So how long are you going to work for me before you go and work for your dad? Right. Sure. In a, in a, in a tough market that's not a great prospect for finding employment. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. That makes sense. But I think you guys did a really good job of that. And then when you joined the company, you really kind of, you, you didn't go in and with all these big ideas. You, I mean, you probably had the ideas, but you just really let your dad, in my opinion, from my view, it seems like you really let your dad kind of run the business his way when you first started with the business. And then, over time, you started to to make some changes, but you were really, I, I feel like, really respectful, and that transition seemed like it was very respectful. That's good to hear. <laughs> I think that there's we could do three more podcasts on family business and right yeah. family business transitions and that the the challenges and opportunities with family businesses. We were probably no different than any other family business. I think it was probably helpful that it was just the two of us in the business and there weren't other siblings or cousins. I think things become really complicated at that point. But I think that uh, we were intentional about it, maybe not as intentional as we could have been, but we utilized outside advisors and uh, family business consultants to kind of help us With the transition, we created an advisory board so that there was, you know, somewhat of a buffer. And I think the intent, at least initially coming, kind of coming back was the fact that, you know, we did have 
we had at the time a lot of these class B centers that were that had been morphed and outpositioned as the population grew and a lot of these junior box centers and more regional nodes ended up kind of becoming the new areas and it kind of maybe sucked a lot of that retail energy from what was great locations in the right 50s 60s and early 70s and you know the thought was okay knowing that how do we go in and try and add some new development and or redevelopment to help kind of stabilize the portfolio or kind of protect it as as future population trends kind of continue maybe somewhat naive as a i don't know mid 30s something or another when i when i came back to you know work in the family business and i think the first thing one of the first things that you learn is that everything takes so much longer generally speaking in a family business particularly if the generation right before you is not ready to let go and so i think that's i'm really true yeah yeah and i think and and was he very receptive to change and new ideas? Not or? really. Yeah, that's kind of the. It's, yeah. that's kind of I right. mean, at, 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 I think at times, but I think the challenge with family business is that the older generation it doesn't it doesn't take much for the older generation to shift their mindset and go into parent child relationship oh. versus you know partner to partner relationship. Interesting. So, but you know, it's, it was a process, and at the end of the day, my dad you know, passed away in 2012. So I got to, you know, work with him for 11, 12 years. And like one of the greatest gifts that I probably could have ever received. That's amazing. Uh, And well, it was because your dad didn't have that opportunity to work with his dad. So I mean, it was really a blessing that you guys had that. And, you know, you learn to be a lot more patient. And as you start to see your parent age, Maybe your perspective kind of changes and you just learn to breathe and appreciate the time together. And yeah, I look back now and if I wouldn't have come back from Chicago and I would have stayed there, I think I would have had huge regrets. Yeah, that's really neat. Uh, And so, yeah, so very, very, very fortunate and grateful. So talk to me about my good friend, Lisa Store. Lisa Store, yes, yes. Who, how did Lisa Store come to be? <laughs> well, you know, it's all, about, it's all about marketing, right? It's all about that hook. So I think that that was one of Edward's great ideas. Lisa I love Store. it so much. And so tell everybody kind of what the Lisa store, you know, you've uh, in the past <laughs> on every side. We so the company used to be called Pastor Enterprises, and for on any vacancy, it would say, you know, for for information, please call Lisa L I S A last name store S T O R E. I thought it was a real person and for a really most, long time. Most people did. She is. Right? You just could never get a hold of her. <laughs> She, uh, she was she one had of the an, first she, women in real estate. Yes, yes. And, you know, she hired an intern, Philip Space. <laughs> I didn't know about Philip. Yeah, we didn't, have, we didn't have him on the signs. <laughs> oh, um, funny. Yeah, so, you know, just part of that kitschy, you know, marketing thing. Well, I, I love guess, that. that. I think people- <laughs> that tells a little bit about kind of the culture. And yes. The, you know, yeah. kind of maybe a little bit about your dad. Yeah. So, you know, interesting. And, and I think right there, there's... There's part of that culture, I think, in any family business, right, where things, there are challenges and there's, 
challenges with how fast that you want to go and write the team that you have in place. Sometimes that the team that you have in place maybe doesn't fit the vision of how fast you want to go. Uh, and uh, it makes I it even more challenging when the right when your you know your partner slash relative slash father also doesn't want to go move really really fast. But but I would say that you know you've been at the helm for a little over ten years now, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I would say so. So my dad, prior to to, to passing away, slowly kind of developed Parkinson's, and so he really slowed down kind of tremendously and i don't know that we necessarily knew it wasn't diagnosed necessarily as parkinson's but i would say a year or two after i came back he had a he had a open heart surgery and he really slowed down after that so like a lot of family businesses i i think that things just transition in kind of a, a slow gravitational way and it's not like there's any kind of announcement. It's just that someone's got to be there kind of making this, the decision and kind of pushing the direction. And it kind of happened after that. And I think it probably allows the previous generation to let go of the things that they don't really want to be doing. And I would say that in our case, that was maybe the operational side of the business. My dad was always, you know, he was a salesman. He was always gravitated towards the deal yeah the deal right yeah and the people the relationship and so he would always want to have some piece of that which was great so we kind of you know worked around that and and, and started to make that transition and then um and i think that that was happening and then i mean the reality of it is you know uh once he he passed away in 2012 it really did give us more of a mandate and more flexibility to to, to do different things that would have taken a lot longer to kind of convince him. Well, you had like <laughs> a real vision. I mean, you kind of had a real vision for, for saying, I'm going to take this, you know, this great business, <clears throat> but bring it into, you know, current times and also, you know, make some investments, take some risk and change your portfolio from being to what you always were known as to something completely different. Maybe not completely different, but something different. I mean, and, and with image and the whole, you know, you did such a good job. So tell Thank me you. kind of what your thinking was and where well, you. Well, so I think I think probably right post post GFC, the retail landscape was changing pretty drastically. Everyone was afraid that there wasn't going to be any more bricks and mortar. Amazon was taking it over the world. Everyone was going to, you know, just sit on their couch and shop online, which in fact they did do, but that was, you know, for call it a, an 18 month period during COVID. Right. I think, you know, we realized, okay, we are in some of these suburban markets where the depth of the retail categories are not deep. Maybe there's actually only one kind of tenant on the regional or national side within that category. And if they ever go away, like we've We've lived through right enough of these downturns where it just takes so long and it's so painful to kind of get back to the point where there's market kind of momentum. And so I think our thought was, and it's not like we came up with this ourselves. We have a lot of you know great partners and friends that we're constantly right talking about where the world is going. So what that led to was this idea of sell off the lesser quality kind of suburban centers and invest in better locations because if you invest in better locations 
I might, we might not necessarily know what the use is or what that retail piece is, but we know that people are going to be there and we know that it's difficult to take an intersection, say like 50th and France mm-hmm. and say, oh, well, all of a sudden 50th and France is, you know, n- not going to be, you know, the dense destination that it is and it's going to move six blocks further west, right? That just, right? That's part it of can't re- happen. That, that's part of real estate, right? Yeah. It's part of the kind of the built environment. And so if you, if you focus in on those areas that you really like, you don't necessarily have to know what that next use is going to be, right? You, mm-hmm. you just have to, you have to be there. You have to be relevant. You have to create the type of space that, right. that retailer restaurateur, maybe it's an office user, maybe it ends up being right, some sort of residential development or project right in the future. I think I would say in a certain way, it was taking our neighborhood roots that we really started with, with my grandfather and kind of getting back to that in a certain way. Interesting. Uh, And I think it's just a focus on density. So, I mean, we kind of said, look, we're going to focus in on more dense neighborhoods, urban, first ring suburban. It led us to investing in such some mixed use properties it uh, and, and was that was there any hesitancy to that to kind of you know you correct me if I'm wrong but your pastor was all retail all retail <laughs> and um, now pastor's not all retail yeah now I would say that we are you know retail mixed use ground up multifamily but all with that same neighborhood approach okay right? so and I think the retail is in our DNA right the retail is. The retail's that magnet, that hook, that that special sauce that makes multifamily or mixed use. It's just a, it's makes it better. It's more in financial speak. It's more creative, hopefully, uh, but it definitely makes things more right interesting. And you know, there's less and less of us out there that you know stuck with <laughs> retail, and I think. What you, when you've been in retail for a long time or that retail kind of subset, you, you, you maybe have the, the patience to, to understand it because it is a lot of, lot of hand holding and it is a lot of one on one relationship, right, with the owners and learning about those businesses and trying to think from the consumer perspective of, you know, what's important, what does the consumer want, how do you get like ahead of the consumer. And I think for a lot of other, the other real estate kind of food groups, traditionally, they haven't right. They haven't had to dive that deep into their tenants' business. Great point. It's a right? totally We've different animal. We've always had to do that. Like, yeah. I mean, particularly if you're working with mom and pop tenants, which yeah. I would say we always have. I want to say that something like sixty to sixty-five percent of the portfolio is our, you know, mom and pop. Tenants, which is amazing because it makes it very interesting, right? Versus just, yeah. I mean, but I, it's I think, not easy. I, think we, I looked at the, I looked at our stats because we've always done business with a lot of, call it first generation Americans. You know, there's kind of a high ethnic tenancy base within the portfolio. I looked at the stats and like 40 or 42 percent of our tenant base is is minority and women-owned businesses wow that's really crazy and part of that is because some you know there's just a real motivation i mean they've there there's for for first generation immigrants 
you know, they have less to lose, so to speak, and they're willing to take that risk, right? And it's it's a big it's a big risk to open a business and to lease space. And I think there's it, other there's entrepreneurs all over the world, right? And 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 right, people are historically right. People have always been coming to the United States, and I guess if you're not going to go and get a you know white collar job someplace, and you're entrepreneurial. And you come from you know your country, and I don't know. You were a restaurateur there. You're like, well, I'm gonna, I want to open up this, you know. I mean, my Ukrainian, you know, restaurant or yeah. a Russian deli or, yeah. you know, whatever. And I think uh, our locations, because they had have historically been in denser environments, those generally were were located where there were a higher percentage of newly immigrated very population so it was logical that they wanted to open up in, in, in their in neighborhoods. The neighborhood. yeah absolutely and, you know which is interesting right i mean we uh, you know gives us an opportunity to really learn a lot about a, a lot of different cultures yeah it makes things more interesting right i, I mean agree. there was a period of time certainly when retail became very stale vanilla and bland and the ant- antidote to that is interesting local right plus um, i think retail. when you know when time get times get tough you know Kind of the big national names don't have a problem just ripping out of your center, whereas you know these folks that own their business and have put so much into it are figure out how to get through the tough times and kind of hang in there a little bit longer. At least that's my experience in the couple of downturns that we've yeah, had. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I mean, when when you're personally on the lease and it's your blood, sweat, and tears, you're going to do everything possible to make sure that you succeed. Uh, you know, if you're one of 200 stores and it doesn't, you know, meet the, the, the threshold and that's you know, somebody in losing some money, room. they're going to close the store. Yeah. Right? right. So, yeah. And I, I think, I think that, I think that the, one of the really great trends that we believe is happening right now that just makes our neighborhoods and our, our cities more interesting is the fact that People want to shop local. They want to support their local businesses. People are always interested in, you know, opening up a new business, a new restaurant, a new concept. And if you can create the environment where you understand that and you can lower, right, the barriers and you, I think you can be accessible. I think people want to, right, people want to meet with with the owner, or at least the ownership group, and know that they're not dealing with someone two thousand miles away. That they're meeting with, you know, with people that are interested, that are invested, that you know, are, are interested in their success, and that you have this kind of shared vision of mutual success. Which that I think that that's a lot of what works in neighborhood. Retail. Yeah, that makes sense, and it, I mean, it's a real partnership, really, between landlord and tenant. You know, and unlike office or industrial it seems like it's way more there's way more involvement like you're saying so it's a partnership yeah for sure right i think that i mean we are constantly in our underwriting process uh we're constantly right meeting with folks trying to understand the business trying to help them share from our experience what we've seen with other tenants we're by no means experts in retail but we can at least point out what we've seen in the past that that has worked and what hasn't and if we can get creative and flexible, right, in some way, shape, or form, right, with the tenants to help them out, that one, it's good business, and two, I think it really 
does strengthen those relationships, you know, kind of for mutual success. And uh, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. So, so what do you see? You know, what do you have in the works? What are you working on now? Well, where's this? Where where are you taking this machine? So, I think <laughs> we, you know, over the last say five years ago, we kind of created two separate companies. We have our portfolio company, which is just essentially our assets, our legacy assets: uh, retail, mixed use, some multifamily, um, primarily owned by the family. We have a separate company called Pastor Properties. And we third party out all of our leasing and management. So we 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 got rid of we took that kind of. Tell me about up. that decision because that's a pretty interesting decision. I mean, yeah. there's a lot that goes into that because yes, it's that's not an easy decision to make. I was at a conference. I was at a ULI, ULI conference with my friend Stu Ackerberg, who's been a really good friend and mentor to me both professionally and personally. And Stu said to me, Howie, what is it that, what is it that you want to do? And I list off this you know, list of like, you know, five, six things. He's like, okay. And of those things, what would you say that you guys are pastor properties is really good at? I couldn't, didn't have an answer. <laughs> he said, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice. He said, I think that most companies... Uh, can do two things really well, maybe three. So you just listed off asset management, development, leasing, management, maintenance, acquisitions. You got to focus, right? Figure out where where you where you want to be. Ultimately, that led to right to this decision that we really wanted to focus in on asset management, acquisition, and development. And we had been trying to really put a lot more energy into our development company, and we just were not we're not getting traction. It led to a really challenging decision to basically say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna not do our own leasing, management, maintenance, all the day to day services that we'd done for sixty plus years. <laughs> yeah. My dad was probably turning over in his grave as I was making this decision, and we basically said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna third party all that out." The unfortunate part is it means that you know we basically have to downsize by like two thirds, uh, and we were really int- intentional about it and very upfront, kind of with the team, and used that used our 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 team as a way to go out and kind of solicit third-party providers. And ultimately, we chose a third-party provider with the understanding that they were going to interview the folks on our team and kind of bring them over. And ultimately, I, what, I, what I said to uh, everyone is that, you know, you, it is not living up to our values if your leader, me, is not passionate about the business that you guys are in and right i'm passionate about the development and acquisition side i'm really not on the you know management and leasing side and we're not going to grow that business and so if you're committed to learning and growing like i'm not i'm not living up to my integrity if i'm going to tell you we're going to continue in that business and and we're not going to grow it and it was like 
probably the uh, one of the hardest conversations I've ever had. I mean, I've known these had known these people for twenty plus years. Some of them, right? Wow. Like they like you know, it's a family business. Right. So to to show up in that way and kind of be the guy that's making that change was it was heavy. Wow. And what ended up happening, I think, just by right being open and 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 authentic about it and having a plan is that a number of those people ended up going over to CBRE, who we had hired at the time to kind of do our third-party management. And, you know, we said with everyone else, look, we're going to, we are going to help you help or kind of place you elsewhere. And so that's, that's what ended up happening. That was, I don't know, five years ago or so. And it did allow us to really focus in on the development side. And we also kind of created pastor development at that time, which was more of a sweat equity model using outside capital for ground up development opportunities we've done a number of our multifamily projects kind of through that pastor development entity the family right will in generally invest in those deals but we're you know going and raising outside capital for those and Interesting. so we we redeveloped our old office in St. Paul and University Avenue into a 154-unit multifamily building that opened up about six months ago, eight months ago. Uh, we developed a apartment building across from Texataga called Volo, which is a 112-unit townhome and multifamily project that just opened up Feb 1 and is already like 70% leased. Wow, fantastic. Um, and we are in development right now in partnership with Bader Development on a project in northeast Minneapolis on 13th and Tyler next to a project that we're a partner in called the Broadway in northeast Minneapolis. So so what was the learning curve like to go from, you know, owning and managing retail, which is a pretty, you know, not easy, but it's, it's you know, the same kind of thing over and over again, and the numbers are pretty easy. Development has a few other moving parts. How did you tackle that one? Yeah, I mean, well, I would say that we've, we we have always done retail development, right? But multifamily development is a much, okay, different, much different animal. And I think the, the strategy was we are going to go and partner with kind of best in class multifamily developers because we don't know what we're doing. We think we can learn. But, you know, let's go and find other groups that we are aligned with from a value standpoint and have a similar vision. And let's work together. You know, we, our, our first deal that we did with the Bader Development across from Ridgedale, we had the site. It was the old Highland Bank site. It was like a, you know, three-story 1980s class C office building. And we bought that. I think we were coming out of a 1031. We bought that building and we sat down with scott and rob bader and said okay what do you, do you guys think what do you guys think of this site like for multifamily and this is before they were right we were doing you know suburban multifamily kind of development in these retail nodes in the twin cities and we knew it was a great retail site but the numbers just didn't quite pencil to tear this thing down and just do single story retail and surprisingly, you know, Scott Bader got back to us. He's like, it's an amazing multifamily site. And we're like, really? <laughs> Why? 
So that ended up turning into a partnership where we developed, we still own that, that property. And, you know, we were kind of the retail experts. They were the multifamily experts and we're kind of learning from each other. We're obviously still, we're doing another deal with them right now, as I mentioned in Northeast Minneapolis, but our St. Louis Park deal was the first deal that we did kind of solo. And I think we had learned enough with the various partnerships that we had done where we felt like if we had the right consultants, that we could handle the multifamily development. So, so are you doing what you love now? I mean, you. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that getting up every day and being passionate about what you do is super important. I tell that to my kids, particularly my kids that are are in college right now. You know, they're like kind of. Well, well, and you have to be so proud to to pack the five boys in the car and drive them past those apartment buildings and say, "Look what we did." Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. They like it. Do you uh, even have a car big enough to put I, well, all of your children the, the in? Well, here's the good news is that right. So my oldest is my oldest is twenty. My youngest is thirteen. I have three drivers, and at a certain point when they start driving, you don't have to have the extended cab <laughs> Yukon to drive your kids around because you're you're not yeah you know they're every they're, day they're gets a little age, easier right yes, yeah yes, that department uh, yes, yeah so. but. But your projects are, are, you know, yeah, something you have to be really proud of. It's a, it's really, it, it, we are, and you know, it is right part of the, I think, family business and right and responsibility that you have is to help explain to the next generation why you're able to enjoy the things that you do in life. It's because of the sacrifices of those that came kind of before 100%. us. And you know, I think that being being grateful and living. Living with a grateful disposition is a lot more enriching and leads to a more meaningful <laughs> existence, right, for, for everyone. So I try and infuse those conversations, you know, whether they're paying attention to me or looking down at their phones and watching TikTok and whether it's being absorbed, I'm not sure, but, you know, you keep Well, you're going. a great yeah. leader and Thank a great you. visionary, and Thank I can't you. wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of People, Places, and How We Use Spaces. I am business owner, broker, commercial real estate investor, and your host, Lisa Christensen. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. To connect with me or the guests on today's show, shoot me an email at lisa at christensenandco.com. That's lisa at christensen, the word and, co. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.